It's a great pleasure to welcome Dr. Marianne Cohn to my Psychiatry Talk podcast. Dr. Cohn is in the private practice of psychodynamic psychotherapy, consultation liaison psychiatry, HIV psychiatry, addiction psychiatry, and geriatric psychiatry. She utilizes individual couples and family therapy. She's a clinical professor of psychiatry at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai Hospital in New York. She's board certified in psychiatry, psychosomatic medicine, geriatric psychiatry, and addiction psychiatry. Dr. Cohn was awarded the prestigious Eleanor and Thomas Hackett Award from the Academy of Consultation Liaison Psychiatry. Uh, she's also past president of the Society for Liaison Psychiatry. Dr. Cohn developed consultation liaison services for two municipal hospitals in New York City and taught and mentored hundreds of trainees. She is known as the leading expert in HIV psychiatry. Dr. Cohn is currently trustee of the American Academy of Psychodynamic Psychiatry and Psychoanalyst and a member of the American Psychiatric Association Council on Consultation Liaison Psychiatry and the APA Office of HIV Psychiatry or the HIV Psychiatry Steering Committee. Uh, Dr. Cohn has written numerous papers and edited various textbooks on the subject. I had the opportunity of reviewing the first edition of her edited textbook titled Comprehensive Textbook of AIDS Psychiatry. There recently was a second edition that just came out. But at the time that I reviewed the first edition on my book blog, bookwrap.net, to my surprise, I received over 19,000 hits on that book review, which was far and above any other book that I ever reviewed for several years, showing the, which really demonstrates to me the importance of uh, Dr. Cohn's work. So welcome, Dr. Marianne Cohn, to Psychiatry Talk Podcast. Thank you so much for that really, really generous introduction. I really appreciate it. Um, well, I am very happy and proud that you honored me with this podcast. Well, uh, before we get into a discussion of the areas where you're an outstanding expert, I like to ask my guests on the podcast how they first became interested in becoming a physician. Well, that's a, that's a really interesting story uh, that, that even surprises me when I think about it. I think it really came from having a woman pediatrician as a role model and the fact that in her office... Uh, she was a young pediatrician at the time, and in her office, she had a lot of books. And I was an avid reader. I can't remember when I first started reading, but I can't ever remember not reading. And one of the books I read over and over and over again when I went to her office was Madeline. And I didn't picture myself as the patient. I pictured myself as the doctor in Madeline. And... Um, from that time on, and I probably was, I guess, around three or four, uh, from that time on until I was eight when I crystallized my wish to be a doctor, I just kept reading. I was a very avid reader, and by the time I was eight, I had planned to become a psychiatrist, go to go to high school, college, medical school, and residency. I calculated that I had about 20 years left. So, so you knew when you entered medical school that you were going to become a psychiatrist? Yes, absolutely. Okay. You know, there are many uh, aspects of psychiatry that a young psychiatrist can direct his or her attention. Inpatient, outpatient, specializing in schizophrenia, forensic issues, child, psychoanalysis, psychopharm, etc. And of course, 
most of us will be involved in more than one area. You, like I, were initially drawn towards consultation liaison psychiatry, which deals with the interface between psychiatry and other aspects of medicine. What attracted you to this area? Well, you know, when I was in medical school, I actually had waited so long to get there. You know, it was basically about 12 years until I, I got there um, or more. And um, I, I realized that I loved everything in medical school. I loved medicine, neurology, surgery, all the subspecialties, ophthalmology, um, ENT, obstetrics, gynecology, and pediatrics. And the fact that I was passionate about all of them it seemed to me that consultation liaison psychiatry integrated that, that love for all those fields into one extraordinary field because it combined the intersection of systems theory, psychodynamics, psychoanalysis, family and generational dynamics, and all of the subspecialties and specialties that I love. And it also resonated for me with the idea of preventing discrimination, advocating for patients, discriminating healthcare disparities by opening lines of communication, and also emphasizing both a comprehensive and integrated approach to care, but also the whole idea introduced by George Engel of a biopsychosociocultural approach to care. When you began to work at the interface uh, between psychiatry and medicine, was HIV and AIDS identified as an entity at that point? When I began working at the interface of psychiatry and medicine, it was really almost two decades before the first descriptions of a person with AIDS appeared in the literature. It was actually during medical school when I took, I took an elective in um, St. Christopher's Hospital for Children, and it was actually an elective in pediatric consultation liaison psychiatry, and that was in 1963. Then again, during uh, residency training, I actually was a resident when I established a consultation liaison psychiatry service at Fordham Hospital, which was a municipal hospital in, in the Bronx. And I developed and organized the service, the curriculum and training under supervision, um, and then ran the service until the hospital closed in 1975. Were you, see, were you seeing patients... Uh, who probably had HIV disease, but it wasn't recognized as an entity at that point in time? Uh, not, not in 1975, but um, in just, before, just before 1981, um, there were patients, or actually in the beginning of 1981 and a little bit before, when I um, started at Metropolitan Hospital, in um, 1981, there were people coming into the intensive care unit and dying of respiratory failure of an unknown origin. We would look at their x-rays with the, with the pulmonologists and they were their lungs were totally whited out hmm. and they were dying and they were young people, mostly young women and men, and um, they were just dying. Do, do you remember uh, as I, at least as I recall it, at, very early on, uh, the doctors began to categorize the patients as coming from different groups, and and uh, they they began to stigmatize the people who had this unknown disease. Does that 
Do you recall that situation? Well, um, well, yeah. I think I, I think to take it back a little bit to how um, it, it was a terribly stigmatized illness, and I think the first thing that happened was just enormous fear. There was this unknown illness that nobody, you know, at the at the earliest stages, nobody knew what was going on, and and doctors were very frightened. Staff was very frightened. Most of the people that I worked with, actually, I don't actually think that I saw that much discrimination and immediate stigma by the doctors themselves. In fact, the infectious disease specialists worked very worked very closely with me. They were not fearful at all. Uh, the the chief of medicine was not fearful. The the pulmonologist was not fearful. I think what happened was the mo- most of the people who were terrified were um, medical students, trainees, um, doctors from other specialties who, um, I guess, did not really understand or were frightened uh, for reasons I'm not, not sure of. But um, I know that when I was asked to see my first patient with the illness, when the illness was actually defined because it was in the summer of 1981 and the illness was first described in June of 1981 in the Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Report uh, by Gottlieb. And um, when I went to see my first patient, I wasn't at all frightened. I, you know, I couldn't imagine why people would be frightened. But when I got to the room, his food was left outside. There were, were the room was dark. Um, he was in bed with the sheet over his head. He hadn't had his water changed in a long time, and his garbage had not been removed. And the floor was covered with urine and soda, and um, it was sticky. And when I walked across the floor, I could hear my my feet making sounds of sticking. To you know, in, in 19, people realized that there was probably a viral cause of this very severe uh, immune deficiency, and they were looking for it. And the virus was identified in the early 80s and specifically uh, isolated and, and named uh, in 1983. So there, there, were, there was a lot of work being done, and by 1985, there was a first international conference on AIDS in which all of that was presented. Uh, the, the pathophysiology of the virus was already worked out to a certain extent, and one medication was identified. You know, the, the zidobudine, or AZT, was, was presented at that conference, along with a method for testing for uh, the antibodies to the virus that had already been developed. Right. So well, that actually happened. But what you're talking about, I think, is very, very important because it was based on um, something that was not only discriminatory, but was also really led to, I think, an increased in an increase in stigma of HIV and increased fear, and actually led to an epidemic of fear. And that was the fallacious belief that um, the disease occurred only in risk groups rather than as a result of a virus through risk behaviors 
So a whole sort of separate mythology of causality developed that that people um, really believed more than the actual science itself. They believed, for instance, that they could get AIDS by donating blood, for example. Uh, they believed there was a whole big flurry of, of weird reports that you could get AIDS from mosquitoes because of some work that was done in Belle Glade, Florida. And this, you know, all of these were complete, complete false information myths. But um, the media, unfortunately, picked up on some of it and, and publicized these myths so that people, um, there was a, unfortunately, I was interviewed along with Dr. Harold New, who was an infectious disease specialist, by Maury Povich on A Current Affair. And we were brought there ostensibly to, um, to have some reason uh, injected into what was an unreasonable idea that AIDS was spread by mosquitoes in Belle Glade, Florida. And um, they really wouldn't let either of us say one word that was meaningful. They just wanted people to think that, yes, this summer when you send your kids to camp, if they get bitten by mosquitoes, they could get AIDS. And that was the whole gist of the current affair. And I was really sorry that I ever went on that program. Right. Right. So doctors, you mentioned that doctors were, for the most part, very brave and, and uh, would deal with this uh, early known uh, infectious disease uh, without uh, a special fear or, or uh, avoiding the patients. Uh, but yet, uh, in surgery, doctors frequently would stick themselves with a needle. That, that's a known thing. Uh, you know, they change their gloves and when, they, when it happens. And, um, and, and yet doctors would, would, uh, would operate on patients with HIV. I'm talking about in the, particularly in the early days before there was a treatment do you recall how surgeons felt about operating with patients with HIV and, and what would happen when they had a needle stick and were there cases where doctors uh, became infected in, in the operating room? In the, hospital that, in the hospital that I worked in, the, the approach we used was to educate on all three shifts. We worked very hard to do that. And the surgeons in our hospital uh, used universal precautions, you know, the, the principle of, of being very careful and using sharps boxes was, was taught and was instituted with hospital policies. And in fact, um, people, people did not get infected. There was a lot of fear, and again, I, I, I would say that the fear was from uh, primarily from medical students and residents who felt that they, they, they bore the brunt of having to start IVs and do things like that, and right. that they were particularly vulnerable. But in surgery, no one got infected. Um, there were reports um, in New York City of people getting stuffed by needles that were inadvertently left in beds, and people got stuck that way, but no one that I know of got infected that way. Okay. We did we did start a support group for interns, and there were support groups for doctors. Right, and support group for nurses too, because I recall that 
at one point there was a feeling that pregnant nurses shouldn't work with uh, HIV patients. And again, that there wasn't any scientific, ultimately there was no scientific basis for that, but I recall running groups for nurses and there was that fear, we'll let the pregnant nurses stay away from the HIV patient. Yeah, well, you know, what's interesting is that before before working in the area of HIV psychiatry, my work was at Albert Einstein College of Medicine at Montefiore Hospital, where I, I worked with people with all, you know, all kinds of severe medical illnesses, including cancer and diabetes. And it was very interesting that I worked with a nurse who was pregnant and refused to see a patient with uh, squamous cell carcinoma of the mouth. Um, categorically refused, and I was asked to see her to see whether I could help. <laughs> she was she was convinced that she could get cancer from this patient, um, and she categorically refused to go into that patient's room. I actually never saw that happen with the nursing staff at our hospital or at the AIDS nursing home that I worked in. I think education really helped, but um, I did see a lot of fear in medical students, some of whom I, I had medical, I did the lectures at New York Medical College on HIV for years, and, and during that particular time, medical students would be extremely angry at the idea of having to work with people with HIV. They're trying to start their careers, and why would I want to work with someone and get sick? A lot of and fear, and there was really an epidemic of fear at that time. And there was, a, there was another aspect of the HIV epidemic that uh, I'd like your comments on, and that was that it became known that it was sexually transmitted. And how did that affect uh, society and social and sexual uh, interactions between people? Well, I think it just added <laughs> Actually, I think it just added to the stigma um, that, you know, you have an illness that is associated with sex, infection, death, and, and, that, and also uh, by that time, too, it was also associated with dementia. Um, there, that's a pretty rough combination. And if you think of the nurse who was afraid to go into the room of a patient with squamous cell carcinoma of the mouth, who didn't have HIV and didn't get this, um, as far as we know, um, by shooting drugs, mythology and fear um, are rampant. And right. I, sex, drugs, and uh, infection and death are, are all pretty taboo topics. In the HIV epidemic, or perhaps at the height of it, that uh, people were concerned about the sexual transmission and would actually exchange HIV testing to assure their partner that they were negative. Do you, do you recall that phase of the epidemic? Yeah, and that's actually not a phase. I mean, that's something that once the HIV testing was available, that couples did. If they were dating and going out and, and thinking of, of having a sexual encounter, um, if they were savvy, they would get an HIV test before they did that. And it yeah. would have actually pre prevented a lot of transmission. It still continues today. My patients who are, are dating um, are making sure that they, they've got uh, their own HIV test and that their partners tested as well. What was the role of psychiatrists uh, consulting on patients? 
Well, it was a very, very, very difficult time, as you so clearly pointed out, and as we both experienced in the beginning of the epidemic. And I think the differences in your experience and mine are reflected uh, by virtue of where our hospital experiences were. I think you were in, a, in an area um, where you had a different population of patients from the population that I had at the very same time, so that when you were in Westchester Medical Center... Well, let, let me just interrupt you. I was at Downstate uh, in Brooklyn during the AIDS epidemic. I didn't move to Westchester until later on. Oh, oh. Well, Downstate, of course, had a very similar experience to the experience um, at, um, at Metropolitan Hospital Center. But what I meant was when, when at the time I was... Not at Metropolitan, I was at Montefiore Hospital Medical Center. Our population of patients was completely different. It was primarily um, a medically ill population with other medical illnesses, a very large population of geriatric patients, not young patients. And I didn't see any patients with with anything that looked even remotely like, a, like an, an HIV patient in terms of respiratory failure, unknown causes of pneumonia, until I got to Metropolitan Hospital Center in 1981. Uh -huh. So it was a different population. I think you were dealing with a population at Downstate uh, while I was at Montefiore. Right. You know exactly when you got to New York Medical College, but right. um, I got there in 1981, exactly at the onset of and the convergence of the drug and AIDS epidemics in New York City. So, so what, what kind of psychiatric interventions uh, would you do uh, and train others to do in, in regard to patients with HIV and their families? I'm not sure if you're talking about then or now, but well, then... Bo both, obviously. So in starting out, um, so this is where consultation liaison psychiatry plays an enormous and very, very pivotal role in the care of people with HIV. Um, in that period of time that you're, you're experiencing, that you were experiencing at Downstate and I was experiencing at Metropolitan Hospital Center, um, the discrimination and neglect that were rampant in the hospitals and chronic care facilities, schools and workplaces and housing and shelters, churches, synagogues, hospices and funeral homes was enormous. People with HIV could not find a place that was really accepting and really loving for them. In fact, it was really so bad in New York City that Mother Teresa established the Gift of Love Hospice because no hospice, no long-term care facility, no one would take care of our patients once they left the acute care facilities. And, and it was a problem throughout every hospital in New York. Right. So you were dealing with a fatal disease at this point, right? Yes, it was yeah. definitely yeah. a fatal disease. From the period from the outset in 1981 until the, institu in 
the development of effective treatments, which really occurred in 1995. So we're really talking about many years of fatal Right. Can you recount or comment on the role of the gay community in response to the AIDS epidemic? Yeah, I think that the first thing that happened, and you asked about uh, the psychiatric care, so I, I don't know whether you want to start with that. Or well, sure, to... any way that you'd like to, to get into your, your role, because you played such an important role in, in, the, in dealing with the psychiatric care and, and the uh, dealing with the public, etc. So I'd, I'd really love for you to explain how that developed and what your role was. The, the, the way that, thank you, but the way that we started with that was was based on the work that I learned the most about in consultation liaison psychiatry in my practice and in my fellowship and uh, in the work that I did following the fellowship, which was in the uh, general medical clinic where we took care of patients. It seemed to me that the, the biggest thing that I came away from my work was with the collaborative approach where we work together with, um, with, with the, the entire staffs of, of hospitals, not just with our own team. That for being a consultation liaison psychiatrist meant working with everyone everyone who would have contact with the patient, but also everyone who was making policies for patients. Because if you don't involve, if you don't involve the dean and you don't involve the chief of medicine and infectious disease, then, you know, you're kind of groping in the dark. And so um, my, my point was to see whether we could provide for uh, destigmatization and de diminishing fear by creating a biopsychosociocultural approach. And, and that's exactly what we did. So the two, um, the director of infectious diseases, and after he left, the two other directors of infectious diseases, a social worker and I, uh, began what was called the Metropolitan AIDS Program. It was the first biopsychosocial approach to AIDS in this country that I know of. And what we did was we established the program. We met regularly. We educated on all three shifts throughout the hospital. We had uh, involvement of the dean of the medical school, the chief of medicine, the chiefs of infectious disease, the chief of nursing, but we also involved the chief of social work, respiratory therapy, dietary, we involved maintenance, we involved every aspect of the hospital, including the board, to make sure that the policies were for non-discriminatory and use of universal precautions and use of the term risk behaviors as opposed to risk groups, which is stigmatizing and also falsely reassuring to people outside of the groups. So um, we, we educated on all three shifts. It made um, an enormous difference. We saw that patients' rooms got cleaned. We saw that patients got care from all the ancillary staff that had previously been very frightened of even going into the room to deliver a tray. And we saw big changes, and we wrote a, a, a paper about it. Well, first we presented a poster about it, 
at the first international conference on AIDS in Atlanta. Uh, and then we also wrote a paper that appeared in psychosomatics called The Biopsychosocial Approach to AIDS. But it was actually scooped by a medical student from uh, England who um, came to work on our service and wrote a paper about it uh, before we did. So his paper came out, I think, in 1984, and ours didn't come out until a couple of years later. Oh, that's interesting. And can you recount the role of the gay community in response to the AIDS epidemic? Well, the reason for the success of, of the treatment and the turnaround from being a rapidly fatal illness to a chronic manageable illness, just like diabetes or cardiovascular disease, uh, that was primarily catalyzed and energized and, re and really revitalized by the gay community. The gay community and gay advocacy made a world of difference. They did everything they could. They had organizations, they had um, sit-ins, they had lions, they had, um, they did really literally everything they could to call attention to the tragedy of discriminating against people for happiness. And they did a great job because there were also tremendously dedicated and pioneering clinicians who, along with the gay community, or as part of the gay community, and along with uh, gay advocates, gay advocates who are generally HIV-positive gay advocates, created a tremendous push toward getting the funding to do research and doing the research and getting the results to the community as fast as possible. And I think that they are, along with the clinicians, researchers, they are clearly needing to get the credit for turning the, the whole entire epidemic around in a very short period of time. And it would not have happened that way if not care and right. interest right. and energy of the gay community. Now, you've, you've uh, sort of covered it, but I, I think it might be worthwhile uh, going over why you think that AIDS stigmatized patients more than perhaps other illnesses. Well, um, yeah, I think I would like to uh, introduce a term that I, I coined in the literature in the American Medical Association News in 1989, which was the term AIDSism. Because really, you know, we have racism, we have ageism, we have a lot of isms, and ageism really uh, was something that I saw a lot of, and you saw a lot of. It was really comprised of the taboo topics, the fears, the discriminatory feelings that people have, and it included uh, homophobia, addictophobia, fear of death, fear of infection. So, in, in other words, that uh, we had here, at least initially, a universally fatal disease that uh, seemed to be uh, more prevalent in the gay community, although obviously heterosexuals certainly uh, did contract the disease uh, quite quite frequently, uh, but but that that's that was the uh, uh, public concern at the time. Uh, 
Do, uh, at the height of the uh, epidemic, how prevalent was HIV-AIDS? You, you can't, it's hard to say that because it's a different number now. But um, So basically, at the height of the epidemic, which would have been essentially between 1993 and 1995, or 1992 and 1995, the incidence of a death and the incidence of new infections was extremely high. And there's a really um, excellent diagram put out by the Centers for Disease Control. AIDS deaths and AIDS incidents climbed to the point in 1995 and then precipitously dropped. And it precipitously dropped because medications were developed that could uh, actually turn AIDS into a treatable illness. And now, at, at the height, what was the, what was the incidence of it? Do you have a... Can you look well, at the chart and read the incidents? look at it to a certain extent, we could say, you see, it's deceiving because it's saying that there were a lot of, of cases. So you say, well, so there were, um, in, in the United States, there were 10,000 uh, new cases or there were 10,000 or 15,000 deaths. Um, per year or per quarter, but um, that doesn't give you the real numbers and the comparisons because there's so many more people who have HIV now, uh -huh. and so, so now we have, it's hard to explain, but, but the point is that if you, it, it's easier to look at what's going on now and what went on then. Let me just clarify a point here. In other words, I think what, what you're saying is that initially everybody who had the disease would die. And now people who are become HIV positive because of treatment stay alive and die of something right. else. So, right. so, uh, so we have a fairly high incidence now still, correct? That's right. That's exactly right. Mm -hmm. So our incidence should be very low because this is an entirely preventable illness. Well, excuse me, the incidence of the disease not should be, be very low, not the prevalence, but the incidence should be very low, right? Because we have a completely preventable disease. Right. So in the United States, um, we, we now have 1.1 million people living with HIV and and about 37,600, we say maybe 40,000, we don't know exactly, are newly infected each year. And worldwide, there are 36.7 million people living with HIV, and 5,000 are newly infected daily, and 17 million orphans have been left behind by AIDS. And that's right now. So that's what we have going on now. With, with, tr with treatment of... They were huge now, and they were huge then, but they were much more large now because people, as you said, are living with the, with the illness. Can you give an idea of the quality of life of people who are being treated with HIV disease today? 
In other words, is it a, is it debilitating in any way today if you if you're identified and you're being treated? Well, here's why psychiatry is so important. Um, if if you are identified and you know if you go for testing and you get tested and you're identified as having uh, HIV and you get into treatment quickly right away. The likelihood of being sick at all from HIV, if you keep getting treatment and you go regularly for treatment and you don't miss appointments and you don't um, forget to take your medication, the likelihood of living a perfectly healthy life is very high. And people live like they don't have HIV. I, I work with patients who, you know, they really don't have symptoms from their HIV. Um, but unfortunately, because of, because of mental illness, because of stigma, because of atheism, because of fear, there are still people living in the United States and other parts of the world who are not accessing care. And the greatest cause of mortality in AIDS is non-adherence. And that's where psychiatry must play a huge role because... You know, HIV has a special affinity for the brain and neural tissue. The prevalence of HIV in people with psychiatric illness is untreated, is 10 to 20 times higher than the general population. And why is that? It's primarily because probably um, there are more risk behaviors in people with psychiatric illness. Psychiatric illness would include addictive disorders, depression, depressive disorders, anxiety disorders, post-traumatic stress disorder, and psychotic disorders. And uh, according to very, very legitimate literature and scholarly work in this area, it's estimated that people with psychiatric disorders have 10 to 20 times higher prevalence HIV and vice versa. People people who have HIV also have a very high prevalence of psychiatric problems, either because they were psychiatrically ill before or because their brains are affected. The central nervous system is an independent reservoir for HIV infection. And even if the person is treated, if they're not treated extremely quickly before the disease gets into the central nervous system, they still can develop HIV-associated neurocognitive disorders. They also can develop depression, depressive disorders from HIV, even if they didn't have a propensity to have depressive disorders prior. So there's a lot of reasons and and people who are abused or uh, violated um, as children or as adults have a tendency not to value their bodies enough to prevent them from having risky behaviors and also for prevent them from going to doctors and taking care of themselves. So a patient who is extremely depressed may not even get up to take a shower. You know they're not going to get up to go to their psychiatrist for 45 minutes twice a week. When a patient comes into your psychiatric hospital, do they get HIV testing? Routine, well, 
now you're talking about prevention. So now routine testing is... Well, it's not just prevention. It would be treatment, too, if they were... So all patients are offered uh, HIV testing when they uh, come to a hospital or to an outpatient clinic. I just got a new, believe it or not, I just got a new internist. My internist retired. And when I went for my first visit, the doctor asked me if I'd like to be HIV tested. I said, absolutely. And I I complimented him on the fact that he's doing routine HIV testing. But everybody yeah. doesn't do that, right? Right. It's not routine. Well, we, what we want to do, I mean, part of what I think is really critically important with providing compassionate care and, and adherence to care is to teach psychiatrists. This is why I'm so thrilled that you asked me to do this, because routine testing is available, and it's available for everyone, including me. <laughs> oh, I had it. And I I didn't want to discourage him. I said, absolutely, I'll get it. I did get it. I got tested. And it wasn't in my uh, my chart when I looked it up on my my chart online. And I said, hey, where's my HIV result? Well, I I finally got him to explain that they don't put it on the the my chart, but they tell you in person. So he told me, well, he told me on the phone what my result was. But, But, you know, it's interesting. You mentioned that it's offered to any patient that comes into the hospital. Um, They don't offer, you know, if a patient's admitted to to a psychiatric ward or a patient has a history of a psychiatric illness, they're going to, and they're admitted to the hospital, they're going to take a CBC. Uh, um, They don't say, do you want to have the CBC? But they do say, do you want to have an HIV test? That seems interesting. Uh, and perhaps problematic. It's supposed to be, yes. It's supposed to be available to everybody, and you don't have to do that. But I'm just telling you my experience. But it is it is offered as part of routine testing to everyone. And my patients get it. I, I see my patients getting it all the time. And uh, it is part of routine testing, and I hope it becomes very much a part of the armamentarium so that if you go over a patient's labs, for instance, which I'm sure you do, as I do, if you don't see it, you say, "Well, okay, hey, how come you didn't get, you know, how come you didn't get your ferritin tested? How come you didn't get your HIV tested? How come you didn't get your thyroid tested?" So, so, so if you had a bipolar patient and uh, and you wanted to get a blood lithium level, would you also um, uh, get an HIV test? I'd like to get an HIV test. I, if I don't have one. On my patient, I, I like to get a routine HIV test on all my patients. Do you think most doctors do or most psychiatrists do? I never. I think that's a good study. I don't know if it's been done, but I don't know. You know my guess is that that's not the case. I think you're pointing out the fact that, uh, that psychiatrists, that, that you're, you're making the point that there's a higher incidence of HIV among psychiatric patients. And yet, uh, I think it's fair to say that most psychiatrists probably don't get HIV testing on their patients. You know, since they're not complaining of, uh, of HIV symptoms and they don't have a history necessarily of, uh, of having sexual relations with known HIV patients, my guess is that most psychiatrists probably don't do that. I think you, you're touching on something that may be important here. Well, I think absolutely, and I think that's not the only thing that's not necessarily routine. You know, as as the as the um, pressures for productivity and 
and faster and faster visits <clears throat> are um, are the, more the norm. Um, there's a lot of history that's skipped too, and just as important it is HIV testing is is asking about addictive disorders, asking about use of alcohol and other drugs, and asking about sexual history, and those are really important. Now, the other thing that's extremely important is neurocognitive evaluations. These are things that take a little bit of extra time that a lot of not only internists and other uh, clinicians have difficulty doing, but psychiatrists may too if their time is being encroached upon. If a, if a patient becomes infected with HIV, will they necessarily become symptomatic? No. So it's possible that somebody can be infected with HIV and not be symptomatic and then pass on the, the disease to somebody else who may become symptomatic. Absolutely. Okay, I think that's, that's, that's a key factor here. Um, so, uh, so to restate... I want to, point, I want to make one point that I think most, many people might not know about it. I, I bet you do know about it, but I bet many people who are not in, in consultation liaison psychiatry don't know. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. um, people in, in mental health facilities have unprotected sexual encounters, and people in chronic care facilities have unprotected sexual encounters. Besides getting routine HIV testing, it's very important to have um, to make condoms openly available, not only in clinics um, that are um, HIV clinics, where they're always available, um, but they should be not only in infectious disease clinics, but they should be in psychiatric clinics. They should be in offices of doctors. They should be in psychiatric day treatment programs, inpatient right. programs. They should be available in nursing homes because... Elderly people have sex too. Okay, so uh, so I think you're you're really talking about the important issue about how HIV infection can be prevented and even after. Well, what about after exposure to it? How can it be prevented after exposure? Well, that is just one of my my favorite my favorite questions, and I'm glad you're asking because very very few. First of all, very few doctors. And to say nothing of psychiatrists, but very few doctors know that there is still an HIV pandemic. And as far as what you just said, uh, you know, what what can you do to actually prevent HIV if there's been exposure? Um, actually, you know about it, and but unfortunately, most doctors don't. And I, I learned that a couple of times. So. Just the fact that you asked me the question is really important. You asked me, how can HIV infection be prevented even after exposure to it? Well, if the person is inadvertently or accidentally exposed to blood or body fluids in an unprotected consensual sexual encounter or a non-consensual or coerced sexual encounter or to a contaminated needle during injecting drug use, HIV infection can still be prevented if the protocol for the use of post-exposure prophylaxis, or PEP, is very carefully adhered to. 
And the protocol is a very easy one. It's a 28-day course of three antiretroviral medications that should be taken as soon as the person realizes that they've been exposed, preferably in 24 to 36 hours after exposure, but no longer than 72 hours after exposure. The preferred regimen for healthy adults and adolescents includes tenofovir, 300 milligrams with emtricitabine, 200 milligrams once a day, with either raltegravir, 400 milligrams twice daily, or dulutegravir, 50 milligrams daily. But I think um, some of those have to be taken with caution in, in women who are pregnant, because one of them was just, there was a, a description in the New England Journal this week of uh, a neural tube defect. Uh, so. Most of these are very, I mean, for non-pregnant adults or people who um, are exposed either in rape or inadvertently during a drunken um, sexual encounter or with rohypnol or forced sexual encounter, um, that's a regimen that's not dangerous, that's taken for 28 days with appropriate follow-up and can actually prevent two things from happening. It can prevent infection so that if you take the medications for 28 days, that exposure doesn't lead to infection at all. And more importantly, it doesn't lead to the establishment of an independent reservoir for HIV in the central nervous system and brain. So, is it, so it's recommended, for instance, if, if there is a rape victim where the assailant has not been tested, is it recommended that the uh, that the victim have this regime, uh, even though their testing is negative? Well, here's what the recommendations are. If, if, you, if somebody presents to you or to me in my office, which it, I've actually had that happen, and I've prescribed it because the doctor that I called, this is recently, a doctor I called said, oh, no, that's only for occupational exposure. And I said, no, it's not. It's since 2012. It's FDA approved for any exposure. But anyway, I started it myself. Now, the reason that you, you start it right away before you worry about getting an HIV test on either the source or the patient, because you can prevent it that way. And there's no downside. If the person turns out to have, if the person already turns out to have HIV, you know you didn't get it from that exposure. So you know that the person already had HIV and they should be on a different regimen and they have to be sent to an infectious disease specialist or HIV specialist. The, if the source is known and you can get in contact with the source and the source has HIV, obviously this is an indi obvious indication. If it's a rape and you can't find the source or if you don't know, you can't get the, you don't know who the source is at all, you treat because... 28 days of treatment is better than getting HIV. You know, suggesting that HIV testing should be routine in every uh, sexually active person who's not in a monogamous relationship. It, it is, you know, it should be and is routine in the United States for any age patient. And it could even be routine uh, for children who are, um, are uh, victims of incest. So. You know, right. we, we initially there was a between age 13 and age 64, but now it's any age, any age right. for routine right. Can you explain the bi-directional uh, relationship between HIV and mental illness? Uh, 
you've touched upon it, but uh, I think it's a, a really interesting theoretical and, and, and important issue. That's a wonderful question also. Um, so there are what are called syndemics or synergistic epidemics of trauma, post-traumatic stress disorder, addictive disorders, depressive disorders that really complicate the HIV pandemic and cause a huge amount of suffering. People with HIV, as I said before, have a very high prevalence of psychiatric disorders, and people with psychiatric disorders have a high prevalence of HIV. And mental illness stigma prevents persons from HIV, with HIV from accessing care. They may not want to even go to an HIV clinic. We had a patient who said, I'm not coming because I don't want to see people in the, in the waiting room. I don't want people to know what I have. And we said, well, you know, what can we do? And she said, well, I want to come in the back door. So we let her in the back door. You know, there's um, people are really frightened, and they, they don't want to pick up their medications either because they're afraid that knowing what the medication is will be stigmatizing. So the, the stigma of mental illness prevents a lot of people from accessing mental health care, and the stigma of HIV prevents people from getting tested and getting care. So, you know, by psychiatrists can play a tremendously important role because both mental illness stigma and HIV stigma are preventing people from getting care and staying in care. And the greatest, one of the, one of the greatest causes of mortality in HIV is missed appointment for medical Oh, that's, that's quite interesting. So, uh, touched upon this again, but you're a leading advocate for integrated care in general, and uh, you're touching upon how it's perhaps different for HIV than for other medical conditions. You, you want to comment further on, on that issue? Well, I, think, I think integrated care is important for many, many illnesses, and it's been used, of course, in, in a lot of illnesses such as cancer, with the work of Jimmy Holland and, and others, uh, the principle of collaborative care works. But for HIV, I think it's magnified somewhat because collaboration and teamwork that works so well with diabetes and cancer and in the care of older adults are more than applicable to HIV because HIV magnifies and intensifies the need for collaborative care by virtue of the multi-morbid medical and psychiatric illnesses associated with it. Because people with HIV don't just have HIV. <laughs> as they, First of all, as they age, they get the illnesses that other people get when they age, which include hypertension, diabetes, cardiovascular disease, and other medical disorders. So, you know, you're really dealing with multiple medical and psychiatric disorders and the need for collaborative care is heightened. I, I was going to ask you about uh, whether or not there's burnout among doctors who work with HIV patients, but certainly as I see your enthusiasm and your increasing uh, energy in this area. I know for sure that that hasn't affected you, but what about your colleagues? Has there been, uh, this is a difficult illness to deal with, and uh, I, we know in some times doctors 
so even psychiatrists working with cancer patients and and uh, trauma sometimes uh, uh, move on to other areas because it's a difficult one to deal with. Has that been the case at all with HIV? The people who've studied this more recently have really found that the greatest cause of burnout in not only this country but throughout the world is the increased needs for productivity, the rapid turnover of patients. Beautiful article by Binney uh, really outlines that very well. It's called Time Matters. 20 minutes is not enough, but people don't even have 20 minutes with their patients because when you talk about examining somebody with multiple illnesses, taking 20 minutes to take a history and do a full physical examination, you can't do that in, in even 20 minutes. But most patients are being seen now in 7.5 minutes. And that is not enough, as Vinny said. So the reason for burnout actually has been found to be related to now in the United States to increased needs for productivity in and increased administrative requirements by um, electronic, electronic medical records with um, electronic prescribing. Doctors are coming home late from work, staying in the office late to get all of that work done, bringing the work home with them so they get hardly any sleep, going to hospitals back in the morning on rounds, exhausted, because they're not spending the time with patients, they're spending the time with the computer. And that has caused burnout because the love and the joy of seeing a patient and being face to face with another human that you're making feel better has a tremendous effect on burnout. If you do that, you, you know, with Anatole Braillard, uh, you can experience the, uh, a tremendous joy, a tremendous thrill. But instead, you're working mostly with a computer. And I'm sorry, nothing against computers, but I don't think that there's a, a real substitute from hum for human contact. It is the lack of human contact that causes burnout. And it is not HIV. I, I wish that if this was video that the, uh, the listeners and the viewers could see your face light up when you talked about your enthusiasm of working with patients. Uh, I mentioned earlier that my book review of your comprehensive textbook of AIDS psychiatry, uh, the first edition that I reviewed, received more than 19,000 hits on my bookwrap.net website, which is way above any other book review I've ever done. And, and I'm sure this reflects the tremendous interest in the several books that you've written on HIV psychiatry. And, and that must be very gratifying for you. It's especially gratifying knowing that um, some of these books, now that, that our, um, our Academy of Consultation Liaison Psychiatry, HIV Psychiatry Special Interest Group, has over 420 members from all over the world, and I'm hearing from people all over the world that they're using the book. And it's a, it's a real thrill because there are places where there are no psychiatrists and the, the people there are making good use of our text. Right. And I think that you've set up a model 
for dealing with a, a serious disease, especially a disease that might come along in the future that, that we, is unknown and, and uh, is initially very uh, scary and terrifying and has serious consequences. You've really set up a model how to deal with it, not only from a medical point of view, but from a, from a psychiatric point of view. Uh, any, any new projects that you're pursuing in the near future? Well, yeah, we, um, a group of our, uh, our members are of the uh, HIV AIDS psychiatry special interest group are going to be presenting uh, at the WPA Mexico City Congress at the end of this month, and um, several people are going, and, and a couple of people are also going to present at uh, the WPA book presentation session that is being um, instituted this year. And I'm really proud to say that our book was invited to uh, be presented, and uh, although I'm not going, um, we, we are working with um, a few of our members to, that I've designated, and they're going to present it there along with their own symposia. Then um, just today, um, uh, we're all working on submitting proposals that are, that are due on a deadline tonight for the American Psychiatric Association annual meeting in San Francisco in May. And we are, we've also, we've already submitted and have had accepted presentations at the Academy of Consultation Liaison Psychiatry annual meeting in November. And we are planning for the WPA meeting in 2019 in Lisbon, where we're planning to present there as well. And we're working, I hope, that the proposal is being accepted on a clinical manual on a clinical manual of HIV subjects. So we have some things. So there'll be, there'll be a new book coming out in the near future, mm -hmm. as well as your, your uh, presentations all over the world. That's very exciting. I want to thank you so much, Dr. Marianne Cohn, for appearing on my Psychiatry Talk podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you for inviting me. This concludes today's podcast. Please feel free to send me any comments at mblumenfield at aol.com and also feel free to sign up for the free subscription to this podcast. Until next time, this is Dr. Michael Blumenfield wishing you all a very pleasant day.